Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, fans of In the Cards, Michael Goodfriend back again to bring you something else that I think you're going to really enjoy. Our series may have reached its end, but we here at Next Chapter Podcast have no shortage of incredible recommendations for comedy fans of every stripe, like The 500 with Josh Adam Myers. Now in its fifth year, The 500 was actually our very first original series with comedian Josh Adam Myers, counting down Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list. Each week, Josh is joined by fellow comedians, actors, and musicians to break down their love for one of these incredible records from the most iconic artists in music history. Every episode is full of hilarious stories, fascinating facts, and great conversation. So enjoy this episode, number 234, where legendary actress and comedian Sandra Bernhard discusses folk icon Simon and Garfunkel's 1968 album, Bookends. Let's dive in. The 500 The 500 J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition So it ain't nothing to new Hundreds more to go And in need of a friend The king of these for Angelo Talking the 500 until the end Talking the 500 until the end my man J.M. On the 500 Talking the 500 until the end The song is Mrs. Robinson. It's by Simon and Garfunkel from the 68 record Bookends. It's number 234 out of 500 on the 500 with Josh Adam Myers. What is up, party people? Fleece Army, how are we doing? So good to see each and every one of you. Uh, Have you seen me on the road? Because I'm out there, man. Uh, Last weekend, Vancouver. I will be in Los Angeles this weekend, December 17th and the 18th, doing the jam and shimmy. And then New Year's Eve, I will be at the House of Comedy in Phoenix, Arizona. And then 2024 is already packing out. St. Petersburg, Florida, January 12th and 11th. Dubuque, Iowa, January 19th and the 20th. Bakersfield, California, January 26th and the 27th. February 2nd through the 3rd, I'll be at the Laughing Tap in Milwaukee. February 9th and the 10th, Detroit, Michigan. I'm going to go to Motown. I'm going to do some shit while I'm there, everybody. And then Ontario, I'm coming for you. Toronto and Kitchener. February 23rd and the 24th. All tickets at joshadammyers.com. Oh, yeah. I'm also doing the Comedy Cellar in Vegas in February. And if you're in New York, you can always catch me at the Village Underground or the Stand or the New York Comedy Club most nights. Uh, Usually Sundays through Wednesdays, and then I'm on the road. Uh, Come out. Come to a show, man. It means the world to me, and it means the world to everybody, a part of the show for all the people that subscribe to Patreon. So go to patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast and pay $5, which really helps this show and subscribe to the YouTube and all of that shit. All right. Simon and G Garfunkel and I think I'm going to start calling them Garfunkel and Simon Garfunkel and Simon. Give me some coffee. Mm. 
Garfunkel and Simon. We love them, don't we? Except for, you know, Paul Los Lobos. Remember that episode? Go back and listen to the Los Lobos episode. Uh, F. Paul Simon. Ah, that's in the past. That's in the past. I, I've my mom owned Bridge Over Troubled Water. It, it's the, I mean, the music is incredible. The, the the sound of their voices together, perfect. Um, so yeah, this was a fun one because uh, it came so quickly. I completely forgot that we were doing it that day. And and Jeremiah's like, Josh, uh, you coming on? And I'm like, what? We only had like a half hour with Sandra, and that is our guest, the legend, Sandra Bernhard. Uh, she is a uh, comedian, actress, singer, performer. Um, I mean, so many incredible movies. The King of Comedy, just uh, Will and Grace, Broad City. I mean, this is a legend in the stand-up comedy, in the in the entertainment world. Uh, we are very lucky to have her on here. Uh, she hosts a Sandy Land Show on Sirius XM's Radio Andy Channel 102. And she's ending 2023 in New York City at Joe's Pub with 10 shows over six glorious nights, December 26th through the 31st, debuting brand new material. Go to SandraBernhard.com for ticket information, and we'll also drop a link uh, in our show notes as well. And let's get into it. Rate, review, and subscribe to The 500. Leave a review. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to the website, the500podcast.com. All right, kids, Simon and Garfunkel bookends at 234. I am such, you are just an icon to me. I walk by your poster every day at the comedy store. Um, anytime I perform there, you're, I've always looked up to you as one of the coolest performers and just like, you know, the fact that you're on this podcast um, for this episode more than anything. It's like, well, one, I'm just excited to find out like, how did you end up on this podcast talking about Simon and Garfunkel of all artists? Well, you guys invited me to come okay. and talk about All right, yeah. all right there you go. One I plus one equals two. All right. I didn't seek you out. <laughs> However, that said, I um, there's a few very important Simon and Garfunkel connections for me. Number one, it was the first concert I ever went to. Ooh. When I was 12 years old, my friend Diane Adler and I went and to see see them in Phoenix. And her dad took us to see them. And um, it was an amazing show. So, I mean, by I, yourself. I was, Wait, you went by yourself. Your parents no, were okay with that? No, okay, there, no, there. no, I went with my friend Diane Adler and her father, Harry her Adler, father. took us. Oh, okay, I didn't hear the father part. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. We did not go by ourselves. And it was an incredible night and um, the first concert I ever went to. So, needless to say, Simon and Garfunkel have been a huge backdrop to my life. And I'm just in the pocket of that time when they had so much impact. And I was just saying that when I was like 12 or 13, I used to do these, write these little plays um, and record them into my recorder. But in, in the background on the record player would be Simon and Garfunkel's song, Old Friends from Bookends. And, they were the, and the little playlet was talking about two old friends talking about Robert and John Kennedy. So I wish I God, I wish I had it somewhere. I wish I could play it for you, but I God knows where they they've been. They've gone over the years, um, but they've always been huge. And then and then somehow in the eighties, I met them, and I ended up in the studio with them while they were recording something. And I don't even remember what they were recording or how I ended up in the studio with them, but they were really cool. I think they'd seen me in, in the King of Comedy, and were fans and. 
somehow somebody introduced us or we were in the same place at the same time, but we ended up hanging out and that was really, you know, very cool. And I, and I run into them here, here and there over the years, although they, you know, they're kind of separately at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sadly, I wish they'd never broken up, but I, I think that's hard for, for most, you know, duos or, or bands to stay together. Unlike oh, the Rolling, yeah. unlike the Rolling Stones, who I think are the only ones who've stayed together all these years. So that's sort of just my off the top reflections on Simon and Garfunkel. Let's start at the first one. Let's talk about the concert first. Mm-hmm. All right. So was it was it a lot of negging? Was it like, please, please, please? Or was this like, because any I remember the first concert my dad took me to, uh, well, not he, the first thing they took me to was Peter, Paul, and Mary. I've talked about it on the podcast, which I did not want to go to. I was forcibly taken seven times um to wow. see them yeah i know right it's how many times can you hear puff the magic dragon it did get better when i started bringing pot and i would sneak away to this this little corner of wolf trap and and smoke but i would beg my dad to take me to see motley crew or like guns and roses and there was no way now i know motley crew and guns and roses are not simon and garfunkel <clears throat> so how how did you did it how did that happen and like were you this huge fan and just obsessed with their music uh, like I was with the two bands I mentioned or like, tell me, take yeah, me my friend, that. Diane Adler and I, we were like buddies from Hebrew school in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And we love Simon Garfunkel. And when we had sleepovers, we'd listen to them. We'd talk about them. We'd obsess about them. And I don't think it was any big sort of push to get her dad, Harry, to take us. He was more than happy. I'm sure he was a fan too. How could you not be a fan of Simon Garfunkel? There was nothing offensive or intrusive about their music. It was just incredible poetry put to beautiful music with two of the most, you know, melodic voices that just blended beautifully. So who wouldn't want to see them live? Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the concert where, where you, you mentioned exactly where it was it with huge. It was, arena at the Col- it was at the Coliseum. And, and I think I, I'm not sure what the Coliseum in Phoenix was called at that point at that time. Yeah. This is like 1968, 69. I think it was called the Coliseum, but I might be wrong. You, If you want to get that, go into the weeds, you could look it up. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, I think, where they played, you know, the basketball team played or, yeah. you know, there were concerts and events. And that's where, that's where we saw them. And I remember the seats being pretty decent, you know. Um, I was wearing a, um, a navy blue pleated skirt. And a blue, <laughs> yellow, and white striped turtleneck. I, I love that you remember what you were wearing. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Did anything? I, I'm a crier at concerts, and I could see myself being at a at a Simon and Garfunkel show. If they if they hit, I mean, was uh, were there a lot of the the emotional songs on there that, yeah, that we I know mean, and love? Yeah, well, whatever songs they had up until then. I mean, when did, when did Bookends come out? I don't remember what year. Bookends came out in 1968, and I love the album. Okay, well then, then for sure that that was one of the that was probably the album they were touring with because that yes. that would match up to that time. Um, you know, when you're 12, 13 years old, you don't cry like that. You know what I mean? You're not like an emotional rap because you haven't been <laughs> you haven't been well <laughs> no but my you, family <laughs> you haven't been through anything i mean i mean music sure. had a great impact on me from the time i was tiny but over the years yes now i might cry over you know hearing old friends 
But at yeah. that particular time, we were just so excited to see. I mean, we had probably had crushes on Simon and Garfunkel. We were just excited. You know, it wasn't like, you know, nothing brought us down. Sure. What was the second concert that you saw? I'm curious. Somebody asked me that recently, and I cannot remember. I mean, <laughs> but you I remember what I, you were wearing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I remember the I, I remember the next impact, very impactful concert, which which was Cat Stevens, which Ooh, was 1972 yeah. um, at Grady Gamage Auditorium um, at ASU at Arizona State University. This what I love about um, about the the record bookends. I mean, they were already kind of like a, a, a pretty a pretty popular duo. Like they already had had two years prior sound of silence um, and parsley sage and rosemary time. So they're, they're, they, you know, they were already starting to really like break out. And so at this point you could, like you said, they're playing the arena, uh, you know, in, in Arizona. Um, can you do me a favor? I want to just try to see if we compare that. Like, like what was like, what were some of the first like really big venues you started playing as a comedian that really were like sticking out to you? As like holy shit, like this is this is way different than the comedy clubs in New York City or in L.A. Um, well, everything once I left that scene, which was approximately eighty one, after I did King of Comedy, you know, I would start to perform at um, rock and roll venues. Yeah, um, I performed in colleges, and you know, some you know some performing arts centers. I mean, when I performed in London, I performed at the Royal Festival Hall. And for me, wow. that was like, for me, that was, I, I performed there twice. That to me was one of the best experiences in terms of like, you know, the, the glamour of a great venue. Sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, I've obviously I've, you know, I played a variety of, of sizes, but it's never like, I don't, I mean, I'm not going to play, a, a, you know, not, a, you know, that kind of a <laughs> coliseum. Um, unless I'm opening or I'm with, I'm with somebody, but you know, yeah. I don't, I mean, that doesn't seem even that appealing to me doing what I do. You know, it, I think you would lose a lot of the intimacy and sometimes the sound in a big venue is not so great. I mean, many times I go to Madison square garden and I go, how, how could it be that the sound is so bad here when it's you think like, it's bad. You think it's bad at MSG. I've been to some concerts where I thought it was like, when I saw the Rolling Stones there, um in 97 98 and the, the sound was terrible yeah yeah i've i've well it's I always maybe it just depends on where you're sitting there sometimes but maybe um, i always look at msg as like the it's it's a venue one where every band seems to bring it uh because it is i feel like the venue is more famous than the actual artist that's performing there um i've seen all different variations of concerts um, i'm actually performing there on friday with bill burr so uh, oh, fingers, crossed, fingers crossed I don't eat shit. Uh, I won't. Uh, at least that's what I'm saying to myself in a mantra over and over. But but there is something <laughs> about, but I always feel like there's something about that. It just depends. Like I saw Tears for Fears there and it was a few months ago before I left for tour. And it was like, it just sounded so great. Um, maybe it's just over the years they've just fixed it. Maybe they've heard, they've heard they heard you talk about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I'm, I'm glad because, you know, when you when you go to a venue like that, well, I, I just saw Bruce Springsteen there. The, the sound was pretty good. It was okay. Yeah, it was, be it was better than. Yeah. The second thing I want to unpack is like you you meeting them. Like, how, tell me how did that go down? I know you had just mentioned it before, but you know what is that like? You're saying you're you're you know you it's probably because of King of Comedy. 
um, you know, at that time, I mean, with being at Scorsese, he's coming off a run of, of his, some of his popular hits from the 70s and uh, having, you know, De Niro in it. And then you being one of the main characters in that. How how did that like uh, affect like not just who was coming out to see you at shows, but when did you realize that you're like, oh, wait, this actually this really moved the needle? Oh, oh I, I mean, I knew it moved the needle the minute I got the part because yeah. it was a very coveted role that so many actresses went up for and you know really wanted and so it was kind of a miracle that i I got cast um a confluence of a lot of wonderful um events that made it happen so yeah i mean do you mind telling me do you mind telling me some of those events i'm just such it's like one of my favorite movies um and i just think you know it's like i think like i said when when you know it's I love these moments and I love like this this like you could like kind of compare this to like Simon and Garfunkel when doing the record like Sound <laughs> of Silence. That's the record that just changed their career. Where it's like Kings of Comedy was for you, just changed the trajectory of your career. Mm-hmm. And like how did that go down? The audition process, was it difficult or nerve-wracking? No, okay, no, no, it wasn't difficult. I just but getting the audition was difficult because my agent at the time at ICM kept telling me he had gotten, he was working on getting me the uh, audition, but never did. And then my friend Lucy Webb, who was part of a comedy team with my friend um, Cheryl Henry at the comedy store, she had auditioned for it. And she said, you're so perfect for this. She goes, I'm just going to call Sis Gorman, the casting director, myself for you. I said, okay. And she did. And then I set up the audition myself, basically, through my friend Lucy. And... um, it was up at the Chateau Marmont. Nice. The first audition, all the auditions until I came to New York. And um, I came in and I, I read for her, but was she, what they were really looking for was somebody who could improvise, which I was, you know, pretty good at from doing my performing, my live performing. And she was like, hmm, she was sort of, I think she was sort of stunned because I don't think she'd seen anybody do what I did. Yeah. And she said, okay, I want you to come back and meet Marty. And so I came back the next day and I met, I think I met Marty and Bobby the next day. Maybe I, maybe I read with Bobby and then they came to see me perform at the comedy store, which was amazing. And nice. um, cool. I think they just wanted to see how I, what I was like live too. And then I didn't hear from him for a month and my friend, Paul Mooney, I was getting freaked out. And Paul Mooney said, come down to Palm Springs with me. He was performing there. So like for a weekend and I came back and I had like, three messages from the, the, you know, the, the production of King of Comedy saying they wanted to fly me to New York for my final audition with um, Jerry Lewis. So I was like, sometimes when you just let things go, they come back around. So oh, they yeah. flew, flew me yeah, to New yeah. York. Um, and that was the most nerve wracking part of the audition process was working with Jerry. Cause he was, you know, sort of a misogynist and he didn't really, I could, I don't think he could understand what a woman like I was doing in comedy. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I kind of broke out of the, to, the norm and the stereotypical stand up comedy of the, of the time. And um, so, but the audition went well and a day went by and I was sitting in my hotel room and Sis Corman, the casting director called me and said, you've got the part. Nice. And I screamed and went crazy. And then I went downstairs to the hotel and Marty and Bobby were walking down the street and I ran up behind them and I scared the shit out of them. I said, thank you, thank you. And I hugged them and they were like, so it sort of set the tone for the character and the role. So that was, it was just, you know, kind of just couldn't have been more perfect. Oh, I love it. 
I oh, love that. Cool. Uh, it's such a great movie. It's, you did, you killed the role. So, yeah, just just like bringing it back to Simon and Garfunkel, them killing bookends. Let's talk <laughs> about this record. Um, is this your favorite Simon and Garfunkel record, or or would do you have any others, or or even? And I'll even throw this in there. You can even say Graceland, and I'd be okay with that, even though it's not a full Garfunkel. Simon and I would say I would say that the the, the three the three albums we just discussed were in in total my my favorite of of theirs but bookends certainly is like yeah I I I I would say yeah but I love Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time a lot too so some between that and 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 bookends those are I'd say my two favorite albums of theirs or maybe maybe right up there with some of my favorite albums of all times Really? Like, what What would you say, like, if you had to pick, like, your favorite record of all time, then where would you put bookends in there? Would you put that in the top five, top 10, top 20? I'd say, I'd say top 10. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm, I, I would have to sit down and really look at my list of favorite albums. You know, Joni Mitchell yeah. is probably yeah. my number one. Laura Nero, Stevie Nicks. Um, Aretha Franklin, Tina yes. Turner, yeah, the Rolling Stones. There you go. Bruce Springsteen. Um, just to name and Cat Stevens, early Cat Stevens. But those are just a few. I mean, I I, I wasn't prepared to give you my no my no answer. no. I I but Simon I, and Garfunkel are definitely in that you know milieu. Question: Would they be as popular if the band's name was Garfunkel and Simon? <laughs> Probably not. It doesn't have the, the doesn't, rhythmically. Yeah. It doesn't work. Simon yeah. and Garfunkel. Yeah, is, is the way it was meant to be. It's too semantic. It's too semantic. Then it's like well, Garfunkel. It's not bad. It's just that it doesn't have the it doesn't have the rhythm to it. Yeah. Um, this was actually. I think this is the second uh, Simon and Garfunkel record we've done on the podcast. So for me, my mom had Bridge Over Bridge uh, Bridge Over Under Troubled Water uh, over. over Troubled Water. Yeah. And and I used to listen to that song like in, I as a singer and a comedian, you know, but, but first at that age, just being so fascinated with music, I used to listen to that over and over. So this is really only my second, I don't even know. Yeah, my second record uh, of Simon and Garfunkel that I've listened to all the way through and uh, very fascinating. I want to give the, everybody just so before we get into talking about some of the songs, this is the fourth studio record from Simon and Garfunkel released April 1968. As we mentioned before, they rose to fame two years prior with Sound of Silence and Parsley Sage and Rosemary and Time and the soundtrack album for The Graduate, Bookends oh. is a, which is another, I mean, that, I mean, that's another one of those things where it's like, oh. I mean, listen, Mike Nichols, a brilliant director. Dustin Hoffman killed the part. Uh, everything about The Graduate was great. But would that movie be as popular as it was if it didn't have Mrs. Robinson, that soundtrack by Simon and Garfunkel, I mean, it's it's the perfect merging of of music and 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 film, which is like bringing up Scorsese again. He's another guy that always nails it. Something like Goodfellas is the per. I mean, every song in Goodfellas, it's like it's made for that. No one ever will be able to use the piano outro from Layla again because because he did it perfectly. And I think I think same thing the 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 chasing scene in the Graduate with the the guitar. I mean, there's they just nailed it and um yeah so, so the, the, the difference the difference is for um the graduate 
the music was done for the film. I mean, Scorsese yeah. always picks existing music, which is fine. But to to sit and collaborate and not only make a brilliant film standing on its own, but then collaborate with the likes of Simon and Garfunkel and have this, you know, soundtrack as if it was a, almost, a you know, a musical as well as a theatrical yeah. film, a, dr- a drama, a comedy. I mean, that was kind of unheard of. And, and, and that was very, it was a precursor to everybody who tries to do that now and music is in everything everything yeah. um and some successfully and some i think not but that to me is like absolutely the pinnacle of that collaboration yeah oh completely uh and and for the people that just don't know bookends is a concept record that explores a life journey from childhood to old age side one of the album marks successive stages in life the theme serving as bookends to the life cycle Side two largely consists of previously unreleased singles and unused material for the graduate soundtrack. Simon's lyrics concern youth, disillusionment, relationships, old age, and morality. And a disc jockey and pioneer of FM rock radio, Pete For I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck that name up, Jeremiah. So if you want to correct me, For For Natalie, For Natalie, once said, "Bookends represents a once in a career convergence of musical, personal, and, so- and societal forces." that placed Simon and Garfunkel squarely at the center of the cultural zeitgeist of the 60s. Uh, and Rolling Stone credited the record with striking a chord among lonely, adrift young adults near the end of the decade. Um, wow. I mean, that's Those are pretty... And there again, I mean, look at the difference between, you know, music that was released then and now. It's like there was a context and mm-hmm. there were liner notes and somebody great always wrote something that was you know, Nat Hentoff always wrote about jazz. There were people that, you know, were were also as, as you know, well-versed being critics and writers um, in the music world as the actual songwriters. And there was, there was that connection. And you, you just don't have that now. A, a couple of singles get dropped, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the world of Apple music. And you're like, and you can't, you can't find the Genesis of the artist or what motivated them. And also it's like a one-off. So you, there's no, there's no arc to the story. I mean, what a shame, what a, what a, what a loss for the world of music. Yeah. There's something about uh, Simon and Garfunkel where I, I feel, you know, and I, and I'm I'm curious if you do as well. I think they are, they're, they're, they're iconic. Simon and Garfunkel is a name that you hear. It's as big as a name in music as, as someone like Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And, and, um, despite them, them being in the same tier of popularity in the, in the late sixties, like nobody really kind of puts them up to that. Do you attribute that to their difference? The differences getting in the way of getting to that level? Or, or for some reason, because I just don't feel like they're on the same level as the Beatles, but they should be. And like, I'm just wondering why, what do you attribute that to? Well, I don't think they had the, the charisma or the sex appeal of the, the Stones or the Beatles or certain bands, you know, they were more like intellectual. And I think that that didn't resonate in the way that would make somebody superstars. It just made them more kind of culty culty superstars, but not, not, not the kind of thing where women are going to throw themselves at you. You know, they weren't, they didn't have that particular vibe. Um, so I just think that's, I think that's sort of like, you know, the differentiation between those two. But I think that 
musically, I think they're, and also, I mean, they, it, you know, like the Beatles, I mean, they did a lot quickly. They're very, you know, prolific. And then they separated and fell apart. And there was, there was that sort of, you know, you know, fight and, and disillusion. And, and, and I think that also leads people like, well, you know, there, there's a, there was a time and a place and maybe it doesn't have the huge, you know, yeah. Ongoing impact that certain, you know, bands and, and performers have. I mean, no, there was have- that tension between them and uh, oftentimes, you know, superstars, especially duos, you know, that tension creates great art a lot of times. Uh, but I was just reading that uh, they considered the Sound of Silence a rush job, um, oh, which kind of blows my mind. Uh, it was oh. the first time after that in the follow up where Simon insisted on total control in aspects of recording. So I was just curious about like, you know, partnerships with you or obviously acting in a movie. It's an ensemble. You have to like kind of subvert your ego a little bit. But then with your stand up, I mean, you can control the whole thing. I mean, you're the writer, potentially director, executive producer, all those things. So right, just wonder right. how you balance that over the years with your various different roles. And Well, I, you know. I like it when I get hired as an actor and I don't have any of that responsibility. So for yeah. me, I don't care. I mean, instinctively, I kind of know if something is uh, if I'm overacting or or. or not hitting it, but hopefully you can tell somebody. I probably I probably would be more confident now than I was twenty or thirty years ago in telling a director. I think that's over the top. But sometimes that's what the role calls for, and that's what they want from you. So if you don't give that to them, they they're not happy, and you could get fired. So sometimes you have to sacrifice what you know will not be the perfect outcome. Um, but in terms of just showing up and memorizing your lines and hitting your mark and really being in the moment. I, I really enjoy that. And it's a break from all the, the pressure um, of, of live performing and writing and, and having to be completely autonomous. It's, it's not easy sometimes. Yeah, totally. Um, I want to ask you a question because, you know, talking about you, you know, you were a staple of the comedy store, like how, like, and you were there during the years where Mitzi was, you know, I mean, I was very lucky enough to to be able to perform in front of her. I did not get passed. I was very young <laughs> in the game, um, and she was and she was quite old at that time, and it wasn't really as sharp as she had been. And uh, but still, to be able to see her, and it's just knowing the history of it. What was your process like getting into the comedy store? How hard was it? Did she immediately? See, I could see her just seeing you and being like, "I like you. You're in." Was it like um, that? No, she, I don't. Th- I think she was confused by me because I was doing something. I wasn't self-deprecating. Um, I was like sort of like post-feminist. And for her, that was very like, what is she doing? And Paul Mooney, who was my mentor, took me everywhere. So he brought me to the, to the store and, you know, he kept pushing Mitzi to put me on. So eventually she did. And then, of course, the belly room, you know, was a big launching pad for me and of a couple of other women and that made a big difference because it was a, a little incubator to do what I did, which was super offbeat um, without the pressure of the original room um, or the, or the main room. And yeah. that was, you know, that was very helpful. And then eventually I think she accepted me. I guess, I guess she liked me. We never really had much of a relationship. I didn't, I, mean, I found her like, strange and amusing but 
<laughs> I didn't really like lean on Mitzi for like my feedback or confidence or anything. I was like, this woman couldn't possibly have any input to what I'm doing and understand what I'm doing. So I was just like, Hey, Mitzi. Hi. Hi. You know, but I wasn't like, did you think Missy was at a good set? Nah. And I was like, I never did that with any of the, of the club owners. I just did my own thing. I was like, yeah. I'm here. I'm using you. I'll get out of here as soon as possible. <laughs> and thank you for the stage and for the, eventually the 20 bucks a set and 20. Oh, wow. I think it's still that. I just, but no, it may, I, think, I think it went down to 15 for a while. And then it's, and then maybe I think it's settled around 20, 25, 30. That sounds Unless about right. Movie. I mean, maybe yeah. it was fifteen. I don't remember. What, but after we we after the comics, you know, went on strike, that that's when we finally got started getting paid. Yeah, and 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 you with Mooney, I I love that he was your mentor. Like how because you all seemingly on the outside, you know, you would think it was so different. Like like how did that come about? How did you suddenly get pulled into the the stratosphere of? Are you one of my one of my favorite comics? You know, uh, like ever one of the realest comics in the game, to be honest. Well, I when I when I very first went to an open mic night, it was at a club in Beverly Hills called the Ye, the Ye Little Club, mm-hmm. um, where Joan Rivers used to do Monday nights, and it was like kind of a jazz venue. It was just like it was just a you know you walked in, there was a bar, and you walked back, and the stage was there, and you know it was like narrow. Um, and the woman who brought me there was this woman named Judy Vallon, who was one of my clients when I, cause I was a manicurist in Beverly Hills. And so when I went to beauty school, she was one of my clients and she was, um, she was sort of a, you know, lounge singer. Her parents had been in vaudeville and she left her family back in Ohio and came back to Hollywood to try to make it. And so she'd come over to my apartment one night when I had my friends who I'd met at the Rocky Horror Show, the live version in 1974 up at um, the Roxy on Sunset. Oh, wow. And I was putting together my little rudimentary first performance. And so people would, friends would come over and I'd get up and do my act. And she said, I'm, you, I've got to take you to the little club and you've got to meet Paul Mooney. And also that same night, I met my friend Lotus Weinstock, who had been Lenny Bruce's last girlfriend fiance and she also did stand up and was a songwriter so i met the two of them and mooney and lotus knew each other and they both came over to me after my first set at at the Ye little club which i did i did very well very happy with my set and they were just like super like excited and mooney took me aside and said burn hard your cigarette come to life they're gonna put you, they're gonna put you through hell in a pair of kerosene drawers, but he just took me under his wing, which he did with a lot of people, and um, we became fast friends. And, and along with Lotus Weinstock, who would have me over for dinner, and she was just a totally like from the whole peace and love generation, and she was not competitive. She was just so loving and giving, and. She had a daughter who's now a very successful songwriter, um, Lily Hayden. So those were my two friends in LA and my two mentors that I, I never would have made it in the business without them. It was a very unusual um, situation. And Mooney started taking me everywhere with him, you know, to all the little hole in the wall clubs where they'd have open mic night, Rusty's Bagel. <laughs> this guy, this crazy comic named Rusty Blitz. He played the grave digger in Young Frankenstein. And he would, you'd have, you'd go there. It was like on La Brea, way down. 
And in order to get on, get on, you'd have to buy a bagel with cream cheese, and, and <laughs> then he'd put you bad. on, which was not. It was a fair exchange. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's there's, there's like open mics you used to have to pay five dollars and get nothing to at least get a bagel. Was it a good bagel? It was a good bagel. It was a good okay. bagel. So, you know, I I started there, and I was working during the day as a manicurist to support myself in Beverly Hills, and Mooney just kept bringing me everywhere and pushing me and like. We'd go to the we'd go to the club in in you know and um I forgot what it's called um the um oh god it was the black club where it used to be now it's the post office it was a fabulous club and a woman um the, the hostess was named Cardilla de Milo um I, I can't think of the name of the club right now but by the way I'm just gonna stop you I want you to keep going but you are so good with remembering names. Like you, you remember first and last, and and it's just it's incredible. Only certain people, because I, I mean, I've, I've, I've committed certain people to memory, you know, yeah, and and yeah, they yeah. were such a huge part of my life. But going performing at the Black Club was to me like the most, you know, essential experience because when you get in front of a Black audience, they're the most they're they're honest, but they're present and they don't oh, yeah. they're really there and they really listen. And I and I would always kill at the Black Clubs. So I was like. This is, these are my people. They understood me, you know, and, and Mooney was there with me. So it was like the Parisian room on La Brea. It was mm. an amazing club. It was super cool, sophisticated. You know, people went there to dance, to drink cocktails, to listen to music and, and comedy. Um, it was a real throwback. So that's how everything got going. And, and so Paul Mooney is, I give him full 100% credit for keeping me steady for giving me the confidence, believing in me and helping me craft my material and just, you know, keep forging ahead until, you know, I got really into, until I got King of Comedy, but he got me on the Richard Pryor show with everybody and doing the sketches. He got me on the $1.98 beauty contest. He got me on everything. He was just like, he was like my agent, my manager. And wow. he was unbelievable. Yeah. He didn't get you on Roseanne, though. No, he didn't get me on Roseanne. But I mean, at that point, I was already well established. Yeah, yeah. rock and roll. And I met Ro- I met Roseanne uh, and Tom Arnold at Sue Menger's house. My agent at the time, um, super agent Sue Menger's, and I'd never met Roseanne before because she kind of came on the heels of me leaving that scene. And we were talking, and and you know, we kind of hit it off. Um, and then about two weeks later, they reached out to me and said, do you want to come on and play Tom Arnold's, you know, fiance, wife? I said, yeah, why not? Great. And then from there, it turned into, you know, to the rest is history. You know, I did many seasons, many episodes. And um, that was another very positive experience at the time. That's incredible. Yeah. I was going to ask you before you asked the question, JT, what, what was the best advice or, or if any that, that Paul gave you? Because he seemed like as there was a, such a a free spirit on stage where almost every great comic that we love, the Chris Rocks, the Dave Chappelle's, the 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 guys, you know, and like Richard Pryor, these are the he was the guy they looked up to. So yeah, well, obviously, he, I mean, they borrowed you know freely from him. Um, he basically would always just say, "Don't let them see you crying in public," because you know sometimes I'd, he'd come to the improv and I'd be sitting at the bar, not drinking. I never drank, but waiting to go on you know, and not having a time slot. And one night he came in, I was just like, I was just so depressed. And he took me outside and he just said, 
burn hard, pull it together. Don't let them bring you down. That's what they want. They want to, they want to break your spirit. And after that, I was like, you're right. That's exactly what they want to do. And then I never let them do it again. Wow. So that was the best advice anybody could, could have given me in the actual moment it was happening. That's so true. That. It's so it's so funny because I'm dealing as as a comic, regardless of how funny you are, it doesn't make a difference sometimes. And and you still are getting, you know, it's it's sometimes hard to see what you have because you're always looking at like, well, why not this or why not that? Like you were saying, just sitting there at the improv in California, especially Los Angeles, more than any other place for comedy is so focused on the fame that that they'll like uh, uh, the super funny comics. Oh, you guys are over here. But this guy who's got credits and on this TV show that has the same five minute act or 10 minute act they've been doing for 10 years. Let's put them up. And it's just right. it's, it's quite difficult. So and that's actually how I was feeling today. So I really appreciate hearing. I'm that good. From, I'm glad. It's always um, nice that you can pass on sage advice from somebody who was as brilliant and caring as, as Mooney. I love it. I love it. Um, all right, let's do this talk a little bit more about, about Paul Simon and, and Garfunkel and we'll get you out of here. Um, who do you feel took the torch from them? Uh, is there a modern day uh, Paul Simon, um, you know, uh, someone, it doesn't have to be a music duo or, or acting or, or it can be anything. Is there somebody that you think works to well that just like uh, Simon and Garfunkel? Well, I'm sure there is, but I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I mean, can I name them off the top of my head? No, but of course these people have influenced generations and generations of, of, of musicians. So there is, I'm sure, a myriad of very talented singer-songwriters in that vein. Maybe but, Father John Misty? No. No, because no, he's not near the so. I'm talking like, yeah, it's got to be, it doesn't, I'm talking somebody, these are, these are, I, I mean, you're, you're talking, you're talking Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, first ballot. No, uh, no, I, I, so then to answer your question, I don't think there is. And I don't think, I think it would be very, very difficult in this you know, environment to make a name for yourself in that way. There's just, just the music world is saturated. Streaming has destroyed it. I mean, that you yeah. can't, like I said, I've already summed it up, so I'm not going to re be redundant. The bottom line is it'll never be what it was in the 60s, 70s, and to a certain extent, the 80s. Um, I, I think really until street, I think until music really, you know, switched up to streaming and 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 became so truncated um there's really there's it's never going to be it'll never be the same i think you said it perfectly earlier i mean dude, yeah. the, there's a different time different time where you i mean now everything in music uh and and entertainment tr truthfully is about image MTV was the beginning of that video killed the radio star and right. where someone like right. where someone like Paul Simon dude Garfunkel is like look Paul Simon's adorable you put some suction cups on him put him <laughs> on the on the window of a car and he's a beanie baby um yeah. <laughs> Garfunkel on the other hand is you know he's got the hair the, the receding hairline he's not a bad looking guy but compared to the the artists that are making music now it's rare when you are a very un, I'm not saying unattractive but just not you know, model-esque. Everybody now feels like it's like the high cheekbones, it's the face doesn't move, and there's auto-tuning and all this stuff. You had real talent with these two guys. And then yeah. you had arguably one of the greatest songwriters of the 20th century, who was like the heir, he's like a Billy Joel, the heir to the great American songbook. 
Right. You know, is Paul right. Simon is has constantly been involved with, you know, and, and that's even before Graceland, yeah. you know, and then he did Graceland. So I just don't think you'll ever have somebody um, like both of these guys where their talent is just surpassed the image. And, and when the image, they really don't give a shit. Nobody ever saw what they look like because there wasn't maybe they saw him in Rolling Stone, but that's about it. Um, yeah, well, that's 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 what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, they performed on, you know on music shows or probably like, you know, Dick Cavett or the tonight show or SNL. I mean, they were, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was much later. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm talking about, you know, the early days. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know if Simon and Garfunkel ever performed together on SNL. I think it was just Paul was on Paul. it constantly. Um, yeah. But yeah. anyway, I think, I think that, you know, I think we've summed it up. I think that, you know, it was a beautiful time for culture and certainly the peak for, you know, pop rock music. I think it was, it established, you know, the bedrock for whatever anybody's doing today or will do in the future. Yeah. And I mean, that's my kind of final statement on it. Sure. I think, I think you're looking at someone like Simon and Garfunkel, just looking at some of the stuff that they've gotten or they won, they won nine uh, Grammy Awards, four Hall of Fame Awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Grammy Hall of Fame tracks, including Bridge Over Troubled Water, Miss, Miss Robinson, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, The Sound of Silence. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. So that's that's first ballot. That's like, that's not, that's like the beginning of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2006, and they are among the best-selling music artists, having sold more than 100 million records worldwide. That is now that is like I didn't I didn't know that I would have thought Paul Simon, but that's I mean, do you that's huge? 100 million records for them. That's like I mean, I think the Beatles that is, are yeah, that is like, amazing. And and the artists that they have influenced, and you could. Um, I mean, not just even they're they're the people that were with them, like the Crosby, Stills and Nash and the but but Elliot Smith and Nick Drake, Jackson Brown, Billy Joel, who James Taylor, Melissa Etheridge, Christ, I would say, you know, and then contemporaries, like I said, probably they pushed the people like John Denver and Neil Diamond. Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. I don't yeah. I don't know. I don't know who's who's better. Who's who? What two voices work so well together? that you know I, I i don't i don't know like the beach boys but there were like five of them yeah i know i think they were really they they were the pinnacle of of harmony and and poetry so it'll it'll never be like that again yeah it won't uh, is there um, any is there any facts, JT, that or anything we got to we got to nail before we get her out of here? Yeah, like, I, I mean, honestly, it's, Mrs. Robinson has the majority of it. Is the first rock and roll song to win Record of the Year at the Grammy Awards in '69. Really? Um, it almost wasn't called Mrs. Robinson. It was uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, but uh, with the graduate, yeah, same, that was the same ring to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they would have won an Oscar. I mean, this is debatable, but they would have won an Oscar for best song from a movie, but it wasn't nominated because Simon and Garfunkel never filled out the forms to get it considered. So no! that was a nice little factoid. Um, oh my God, I can't believe that. Can you believe that's, that? They would obviously wow. have won that. I mean, that's... that's what, what did win? Yeah, find that out, dude. Well, does, does, doesn't Paul Simon have an EGOT? I'm pretty sure he's got like an EGOT. Right? Yeah, outside of the I feel like he's got EGOT vibes. Uh -huh. 
You know, uh, talk to the animals from Doctor Doolittle. There it was is. The winner. There it is. A <laughs> oh my god, that is crazy. It was the sixties. We weren't um, paying attention, said Simon. <laughs> Jesus Dude. Christ, that is wild. Hilarious. I, well, and then also, I remember the Lemonheads covered this song too. Yeah, uh, which introduced it to like you know the Gen, Gen X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Evan Dando and. I mean, Hazy Shade of Winter is, you know, the Bengals recorded that right, and it's right. in less than zero. I mean, there's a lot of great <clears throat> shit on here. There's a lot of great. I mean, but you just get, get take aside the fact that it's then you find out it's a concept record, but just great, great music. Um, you know, like and I know I asked this, um, but it's like, is is this is this just a, a great record for 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 Paul uh, Simon and and Garfunkel, or is this you know a great record for the history of mankind? Is it you know what I mean? Well, I think I think all those early albums are, are definitely the top echelon of of all records. You know for sure. I mean, <laughs> not just for them for music. They yeah. they had a sound that was completely unique. Um. And they were on their path and they stayed on their path. And that's that's why we still want to talk about them and listen to them and, and why they still have such impact. Do we know why they broke up? I mean, besides Paul Simon probably take it. I mean, I know he took control and, and kind of started writing the majority of the music. But do you have anything on that, JT, of what when it ended? Because I just have this thing saying that he thanked him at the tw- 2001 uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist induction and how he regretted ending our friendship. And I mm-hmm. hope that someday before we die, we will make peace with each other. Oh, so this was like a bad breakup. Yeah. Ugh. Had a troubled relationship leading to artistic disagreements and the breakup in 70. Final studio album was Bridge Over Troubled Water. Uh, released that January and became one of the world's best-selling albums. And following their split, Simon hit big on both the singles chart. I mean, he had his solo career at that point. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. That is what a crazy, if they're having, they're really, you know, literally they're really having, <laughs> there's, there's, there's troubled water. There was troubled water and they swam yeah. to shore. Yeah. yeah. I Two mean, different banks. It, it's just exactly. such a, it's just such a it's such a bummer. It's such a bummer that, you know, we've got like we've had we have this whole thing with Paul Simon on the podcast, Sandra, where um where we were can I say it? I don't we 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 did research on Graceland for another record. It was a it was a Los Lobos record and there was a song on that record that that they helped uh they that that Paul Simon Kind of didn't, didn't totally. Uh, they worked together on a on a song for Graceland that that he did not credit them, and so we had started a very big like you know like F Paul Simon uh, thing on here. <laughs> now it's been it's been changed throughout the years because the music, uh, but it's like a weekend. What we've read about him is that he is this very controlling, you know, and that's listen to be to be successful. <laughs> There are a lot of, you have to have those blinders on. Now I'm not saying that he, you know, is, is the reason that it ended. Cause I know that the, the ego from, from, from both of them is definitely contributing to it. But do you think that they had more in them or do you think Paul was just that driving force? Like did Garfunkel ever put out a solo record at all? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He had that one great, he had one hit. It was a good song. And I can't remember what, what the name of it was, but if you look it up. Um, yeah, look that up. Did we figure okay. it out? 
I didn't even know that Garfunkel. All I know is that yeah. Garfunkel is probably one of the uh, Garfunkel and uh, Oates are are the two right. best sidekicks. Uh-huh. But uh, but of of all time, and if you can go at any Halloween costume as either one of them, there is a very good chance you will be in the top five of any uh-huh. Halloween contest. Uh-huh. Um, but did I love see, it. Did I, you see the song? Yeah. The, did you figure it out, JT? Song. I have uh, his album Breakaway was released in 1975. There was a single from that that album, and then we'll we'll wrap it up on that note. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, they reunited. Okay, well, don't worry John about what reunited. Tell me what the what the hit was. So yeah, Art Garfunkel's we... album "Breakaway" is the second solo album by Art Garfunkel. So we can find the first one. Um, just put the but... top the t- his his top solo. Um, yeah, just just type in Gar. Just go into Spotify and type in Garfunkel. It's coming up here. I'll do Angel right Claire. Now. No. Solo studio album by Art. While you hear, while you I want the that, song, not the yeah, album. I got it. I got it. Bright Traveling eyes, boy. Bright eyes. No. It's bright eyes. Art Garfunkel. No. It's not bright eyes. No. Einzug Flarfen Dirk. This is all on here. I'm looking up Garfunkel. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll be. I'll right. leave it to you. You guys. No, no, no. Okay. I got Breakaway. I got Scissors Cut. Those are a few of his records here. Let's before we get into do the plugs. I'm so sorry. It fell apart at the end. You loved us, and then then it all just. I, it was, the love is still there. Thank you. All right. Um, I ask everybody this, but before we ask these questions, um, you have Joe's Pub coming up December That's 26th right. through the 31st. I love that. It. I rent cars literally at the Hertz. A block away. Not yes. even. Yes. Well, that's Tell great it. news. I'm glad you do that. But drive over to see me. I and just pop in my new show, my holiday extravaganza. Easy listening is the name of my show. Nice. So maybe I'll even cover a Simon and Garfunkel tune now that I've been inspired here. Love it. And, um, and every year I put together, you know, a, a fabulous set list for the show. And, you know, of course, do a year end wrap up of my own life and the world and tie it together in an optimistic, you know, forging ahead, you know, vibe that everybody needs now more than ever. So come and and be together with me and my fabulous band, the Sandy Land Squad Band. Oh, I love it. And come and, and celebrate with me incredible venue too it's like so many different people that i that i know comedians uh and and just like i mean bridget everett so many great performers have been there uh incredible venue and 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 like i said to the fleece army out there if you're in new york or in new jersey or even pennsylvania fucking drive up go to see this show i will be there and can i get a picture absolutely yes i'll be i i come out afterwards and sign merch so you can come up to the merch table and, and, and get a get a get a selfie okay all right thank you guys that, so much well, hold on, wait, wait, gotta ask you i gotta ask you these four quite these three quick questions what? And we'll what? Get you what's your <laughs> favorite song on the record favorite song on bookends yes yeah uh, old friends for sure okay least favorite song on the record um i don't think i have a, i think i love them all i don't think i have a least favorite song like i said it tells a whole story yes. so they all work together Okay. In concert. I ask everybody this next question. Can you fuck to this record? No. No. This is not a, this is not a sexy album. It's just a, an emotional album. And then final, <laughs> one, final question. What's your elevator pitch to get someone to listen to this record? 
oh, it'll just take you on some sort of a fabulous like little, you know, journey around to me in New York City. It kind of encapsulates the feeling of walking through Central Park in the fall and, you know, the leaves are kind of just, you know, turning and blowing around you and and you're connected to life. And that right now is so essential. Yeah, I, I, I agree with exactly what you said. I listened to this record walking around New York City uh, since I've gotten back. And I mean, it definitely it definitely adds a vibe. And uh, and I, I just can't thank you enough for coming on. I mean, this was so thank great. Thank you for having on me. so many levels. I will see you between December 26th and the 30th, most likely the 26th, maybe 27th. But I will okay. be there. And so thank you so much for coming on, Don. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You see it. you soon. Ooh, I told you it was a goodie. Sandra G. Bernhard on Instagram. Sandra Bernhard on Twitter. Uh, listen to Sandy Land Show on Sirius XM's Radio Andy Channel 102. And this year, she's ending 2023 in New York City at Joe's Pub with 10 shows over six glorious nights, December 26th through the 31st, debuting brand new material. Go to SandraBernhard.com for ticket information, and we will also drop the link in our show notes. How about new music? We've got Australian folk rock duo Luluk, and you're listening to the title track Diamonds from the 2023 record. All right? Listen to that, and if you want to play a song or you want us to play a song on our podcast of your music, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com, and we will play it. Next week, it is The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man. I think it's important from 1965. Dig into it, and we'll talk to you later, kiddos. On the road with Jacob At the blind pig with its carpet Worn down to the groove Maloney said you shouldn't come in here so What a gent surely knows We said nothing on stage that night Just played how gentle is strong too It's all a dream Took us in the crowd, no problem at all. It's all a dream. They took us in the crowd, no problem at all. All the projecting of my fears over these years. Well, I'm done with that ego. Understand me. I'm grateful to it all. You gotta learn how you wanna do things and how you never want to. It's all a dream. How big or small you want it to be. It's all a
Next Chapter Podcasts.